Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was his, at his head a cake, baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I alone only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mehalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. And Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, Elijah. We thank you for your ministry and care for him, even in the deepest and darkest and most depressing moments of his life. We ask that you would speak to us now through your word, through your Holy Spirit, through, through my tongue, words of grace and mercy that you would minister to us in the harshest moments of our lives. Lord, be with us now in the presence of your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I, I, I grew up in the 80s, and as a child of the 80s, I was a big fan of Stephen Wright, stand-up comic, uh, looked a little like Bozo the Clown without the makeup. He had a really distinctive style, uh, just complete deadpan uh, delivery, uh, just as dry as could possibly be. Every once in a while, he would sort of barely crack a, a little bit of a smirk when he was amused with himself. Uh, but one of his specialties were these kind of one-liner non-secretors. And he would say some, some really funny things like this. He would say, 7% of all statistics are made up on the spot. A clear conscience is usually the sign of a bad memory. A conclusion is the place where you got tired of thinking. All of those who believe in psychokinesis raise my hand. This one is true. Bills travel through the mail at twice the speed of checks. Cross-country skiing is great if you live in a small country. Eagles may soar, but weasels don't get sucked into jet engines. For every action, there is an equal and opposite criticism. These are what are known as non-secretors. A non-secretor is a Latin phrase. It, it literally means it does not follow. And so the idea of a non-secretor is that there's a conclusion, there's a second half to a statement that does not logically follow the premise. It might be associated in some way, or it might be completely disconnected, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't follow. And the more absurd the non-secretor is, the, the funnier it is. And so a lot of humor... Uh, even comic strips, right, are built on the idea of non-secretors. But when non-secretors aren't absurdly funny, they can actually be really dangerous and problematic because they're logical fallacies that lead us to believe things that simply aren't true. We jump to conclusions that don't follow from the evidence that is in front of us. I find this particularly true uh, when I follow too much my emotions, right? It's, it's dangerous to ignore your emotions, but it's dangerous to get caught up in them too much, too. Perhaps you've experienced this as well. If I'm up, uh, and, you know, I can be overly, even unrealistically optimistic, expecting outcomes that simply uh, aren't likely to happen. It is almost fall, I know kind of hard to believe, but football season is almost upon us. Everybody's undefeated. We are all probably unrealistically optimistic. You don't need to ask me how I feel about LSU's season right now. We have an expression for this. It's called a homer pick, right? You're excited about your team. You know you're going to win. You know it. If we're down, 
if we're depressed, we can easily make things out to be far worse than they really are. And I think we're all susceptible to some degree or another to emotional non-secretors. Today we're going to see that even Elijah, right, the great prophet, the man of God, the one who could call down fire from heaven and raise to life a widow's son, even Elijah could get down and depressed and come to wrong conclusions about God and about his people. So let's see what we can learn from this story. Now, this is an episode that builds upon a, a previous one, so we need that, you know, previously on moment in, in our program. Uh, what happened last time, last week, if, if we want to put it like that, was that Elijah and the Lord secured this great victory over Baal and his prophets in, in what could best be described as a prophetic uh, cage match or something. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story, you need to go back and, and read 1 Kings 18. It's, it's, it's insane and amazing and uh, you know, they, they go up on, on the mountain, Mount Carmel, which is in the far north of Israel in Baal territory. And uh, there's a duel between Elijah and these prophets of Baal. They each set up an altar and then they call upon uh, Baal in, in, the, in one case and, and the Lord in the other to bring fire down to consume the offerings. And Elijah wins. And of course, it's written in God's law that a false prophet is to be put to death. And so subsequently, uh, Elijah and the people raise up and, and go after the prophets of Baal and, and put them all to, to death. But something even better actually happens at the end of that, which is that God sends rain. There's actually been uh, quite a drought going on at that point, kind of like here. And uh, they desperately needed rain and God sends rain after that. And so there's this sort of massive repentance and even Ahab, Ahab is the king at this point uh, and he's a pretty, he's kind of a waffler, not, not, not the greatest guy in the world. There's, there's a seeming repentance for Ahab and for the people, it's all good. And then Ahab returns to Jezreel, Jezreel is his winter palace and he tells his queen uh, Jezebel all about what Elijah had done including killing the prophets of Baal and Jezebel well, Jezebel is a pagan. She's, she's not actually an Israelite. Uh, she worshiped Baal, and all those prophets were her buddies, her pals, and she is seriously ticked. So she sends a message to Elijah. It reads as follows, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of them by this time tomorrow. And it's essentially like saying anything you or your God can do, I can do better. And it's not clear if she knew exactly where he was, but presumably she didn't, because if she wanted him dead, she could just send a hit squad after him, right? It's more likely she knows the general vicinity where he lives, and so she sends a messenger to the area and posts a notice. And so while it reads like an oath, effectively what it is is a death warrant, right? It's a price on Elijah's head, a bounty. There's now a picture up in the post office, so to speak. Elijah is wanted dead or alive. And the net result of that for Elijah is that he feels like everything that he has done is now for naught. Ahab has sort of just defaulted everything to Jezebel. She's the one calling the shots and that thin veneer of repentance is gone. 
it's an incredible turnabout for him. I mean, he literally goes from the high to the low, literally and metaphorically, right? Mount Carmel had to have been the high point of Elijah's entire ministry. Best sermon ever. It ends with fire coming down from heaven. If I could do that, wow. I couldn't even get the candles lit. Not so much, right? It seemed great, but now it doesn't seem like they're faithful to the Lord at all. And suddenly he feels very scared and very much alone. So he runs for it. He's on the lamb. He goes to Beersheba. Beersheba is in the far south of Judah, right? You've got a divided kingdom at this point. So he's, in, he's in, under a different king's territory where the, the bounty isn't on his head. And it's also about 100 miles uh, south of Jezreel. It's, it's in what's called the Shephelah, which is southwest of Jerusalem. It's a very hot and dry area. It's not quite the desert, but it's very close to it. It's probably a lot like Austin is right now. He goes down there. He goes there, and then he journeys a day further. He leaves his servant behind. He goes out into the desert by himself, and he wants to die. Sits down under a broom tree. Now, a broom tree is, a tree is generous. They were five, maybe ten feet tall. We'd probably call it something like a bush or maybe a shrubbery. He doesn't want to go on. He prays to God, let me die, because he feels like a complete failure. And I'm not generally into psychoanalyzing people in the Bible, but I don't think it's a stretch to describe Elijah as depressed at this point. I mean, he's exhausted emotionally, physically. It's, he's spent, right? There's the journey. There's this radical turn of events. There's fear. There's adrenaline. He lays down to go to sleep. And the Lord sends an angel to minister to him. To be more specifically, he sends him to cook for him. He makes bread and brings water. And he does this twice with another sleep in between. And this nourishment from two cakes of bread is enough to give him strength to travel another 40 days further into the wilderness to Horeb which is another name for Mount Sinai, by the way. And he stays in a cave there. Now, that's some pretty serious bread. 40 days. Angels must be good cooks. But all of this is reminiscent of Moses, right? He's now at Mount Sinai. It's been 40 days now since he ate anything. Moses went up on Mount Sinai for 40 days when he received the Ten Commandments. And so it's sort of building expectation in us. What is the Lord going to do? So the word of the Lord comes to Elijah in the cave and asks, What are you doing, Elijah? And this question is actually sort of a, a gentle rebuke, if you will. There's sort of an implied, you know, you're supposed to be up in Samaria dealing with Ahab. You're supposed to be on task. You have a job. Why are you way down here? And Elijah responds describing his world 
as he sees it. And there is some fact and some fiction. There's some exaggeration and hyperbole in here. And this is where we run into that critical non sequitur. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. They seek my life to take it away. And on the face of this, many of these things, I mean, they seem to be generally true, or at least they had been in recent memory. It's true for certain that Elijah has been very jealous for the Lord. And it's true that in general, the people had forsaken the covenant and thrown down the Lord's altars. He actually had to rebuild one of them before. But then he begins attributing everything that Jezebel has been doing to all of the people. Things like killing the prophets and seeking Elijah's life. How can he know that they are all on board with everything Jezebel wants? And he seems to be completely discounting the marvelous events that happened on Mount Carmel. Even the acts of repentance that followed. But where he really goes over the top is when he says that he is the only one left. And isn't this true for all of us? When we are in despair and depression, we feel completely isolated and alone even when we know we really aren't. Elijah knows that he's not completely alone. He knows that Obadiah, who was one of the servants of the king, who was also still faithful to the Lord, had saved over a hundred prophets just a few chapters earlier. And even if those guys weren't with him at Mount Carmel, he knows that they're still alive and around. He knows that he's not truly left alone amongst God's servants, but that's not how he feels right now. As he runs for his life. God you haven't done anything and I want to die. The reality is. God you haven't done what I wanted you to. And now I want to die. So what does God do? No, no, no Elijah. You've got it all wrong. Let's fix your theology. You have trust issues my man. Come here, you little runt. Let me tell you what I've been doing. You think this is all about you? I'll show you. No, that's not, that's not what God says. As Isaiah says, a bruised reed he will not break. And God says, come out, stand on the mountain. And then, amazingly, he does For Elijah, what Moses had asked for before, he passes by Elijah. He shows him that he is not alone. But it's not what we expect. It's not exactly what Elijah expects either. He first passes by in a great wind, in a storm. It's like a tornado hits the mountain and rocks are breaking all around him. Must have been quite frightening. But the Lord was not in the wind. And next an earthquake, but the Lord is not in the earthquake. And then a fire, but the Lord is not in the fire. And these are all the things that descended upon the top of Mount Sinai when Moses was up there with the Lord. 
great dramatic things. Things like lightning falling from the sky to consume a sacrifice. And these are the demonstrations that we all would love to get for the proof that God is real and that he is with us. And it's what Elijah wanted, I'm sure, too. And yet God was not in those things. And then it says, the Lord came to him in a low whisper. The Hebrew expression here is, is very difficult. Nobody's sure exactly what it means. It does mean something like that. There's lots of guesses out there from different scholars. Personally, I think it, it might be translated as that he came in something like the sound of silence. As if the presence of God was overwhelming to him in the silence. But the idea, regardless, is the same. God was present and known to Elijah in the stillness and in the least dramatic, but perhaps most overwhelming and intimate way. And then the Lord asks him again, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gives the same pathetic answer. And what do you think God does this time? I mean, he's revealed his presence in the most intimate possible way. Elijah, Elijah knows that he's not alone. He's experienced God's presence. But the bottom line is he's still afraid and confused. Elijah needs something more concrete. And don't we all? So God gives him something more concrete. He gives him instructions. He gives him a new plan. A plan that makes it clear, quite frankly, that Elijah is not alone. He's not alone in the work of the Lord. Elijah, I've got some things for you to do. You're going to go to Damascus and you're going to anoint Hazael as king over Syria. Now that's kind of a crazy thing. That's remarkable because, well, Syria is one of the enemies of Israel and they're a pagan country. I mean, normally God's prophets aren't anointing the kings of the enemies of the country, but that's what he's got to do. Second, go and anoint Jehu to be the new king over Israel to succeed Ahab. Third, go and anoint Elisha to succeed you as prophet. You are not alone. Never again. It doesn't all ride on you. I've got plans that you haven't ever even thought about. Ahab and Jezebel are just pawns. Oh, and by the way, there are 7,000 remaining faithful to me in Israel. You, my friend, are very, very far from being alone. Now, what comes next? Folks have thought it a bit strange that this little episode about the call of Elisha being squeezed in here. And the reason is that Elisha doesn't even come up again in the book of Kings for several chapters. He's, he's just kind of irrelevant at this point. So why put this here? Why introduce him now? And I think the reason is, is that this is the first step in God shoring up Elijah's faith. He goes and he calls Elisha with this strange routine. Now, Elijah was a, he was a bit of an odd character. He wore this big, heavy, uh, hairy cloak. He was kind of well known for this and everywhere he went. And so he comes up to Elisha and he just sort of throws the thing on him. And it works. Elisha gets the message. 
And to Elisha's credit, he's ready to leave and go and follow Elijah. But then there's this little routine with the parents. And it's, it's kind of interesting. Some have thought that this was an example of Elisha's hesitancy to, to follow Elijah, sort of like a, a turning back or a turning away from the call. But I don't think that's what's going on because the kissing of his parents is likely a way to seek their blessing. But further, Elisha, we realize, is giving up a lot to follow Elijah and to serve the Lord. Twelve yoke of oxen, that would be an extraordinary farm that he's leaving. His family was very wealthy and he undoubtedly was, have stood to inherit all of that. Taking two of those oxen and then sacrificing them, that's a lot of beef. He didn't just feed his family. He fed the whole town and probably everybody that was anywhere near there. They threw one heck of a big party for Elisha's calling. Instead of indicating hesitancy, these actions represent the full commitment of Elisha. Elijah will never be alone in his labors again. He has a disciple to help him, to encourage him, to prove to him that not only is God at work, but there are in fact faithful people in Israel, people that he hadn't even seen yet. Friends, do you, do you ever get down? Does your faith weaken? Does God seem far away? Do you ever feel isolated and alone? Do you ever feel like, you know, others, other Christians, certainly they, they couldn't feel like this. Maybe, maybe, maybe my faith is just too weak after all. Do you ever draw conclusions that differ with what the Bible tells you is true about yourself? Do you feel unwanted or unloved? Do you believe perhaps that God has abandoned you? You are never, ever so broken or so wrong or so awful or so damaged that God cannot love you. He sent his son to die for you. His son who knows your grief, your fears, your despair. Christ despaired so greatly in the garden that he sweated blood. This is an incredible level of stress and anguish that he endured. And then he went through with it anyway, voluntarily dying on the cross for our sins, yours and mine. How could we be more loved than that? He did that for our very worst moments. What would happen if you confessed your struggle to God or perhaps to a friend? Would maybe instead of finding out how weak and alone you are, you might find out that they struggle too? Would you perhaps find God comforting you in the stillness and the quiet? Depression is hard. It has many causes. And if you find yourself struggling with it, do seek help. Don't let your emotions and your despair lead you to conclusions that simply aren't true. Go to the Psalms. You know, in the back of your bulletin there, that little taking gathered worship home section, you'll notice that there's a lot of Psalms in those readings, more than anything else. 
The Psalms, the psalmist regularly expresses the deepest emotions of the heart and the soul. You will see how God loves and cares for his children over and over again there. If this level of depression and despair can happen to Elijah, it can happen to any of us. Go to someone in the church, someone you trust. You have excellent, wonderful pastors, staff, elders, deacons. There's a lot of folks that love you here. Let one of them give you some perspective on your fears. That's what the church is here for. That's why we're called together. We were not made to endure this alone. When you are down, it is so easy to believe so many things that simply aren't true about yourself, about others, about God, about your life and about this world. And most of all, no matter what, no matter how you feel, remember that you are loved by the God of the universe. He made you. He knows you. He loves everything about you. He even likes you, believe it or not. He gave up his son for you. He just wants to be with you, to have fellowship with you. That's what this table is all about. God wants you at his party. He has plans you know nothing about. And even in the hardest, darkest, quietest moments, he is at work in your life. So re repent, turn, turn away from those things. Just drag yourself to church if nothing else. You can't force a change of your emotions. But you can bring your body somewhere else. Believe the good news that Christ loves you and died for you. There's hope for you at the foot of the cross. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the truth of your gospel for all that it says to us in your, in your heart, your actions, your deeds, and, and all that you say to us in your word. We confess that in the midst of our worst emotions, we don't know what to do. We, we don't know how to turn from it. That we need your help. We cry out to you to save us from those darkest moments, to comfort us and remind us that we're not alone. Lord, let the, the truth of the grace of Christ and the love shown to us in the gospel be real in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.